This is the Amazon Planet Podcast, episode 35. I'm your host, Joel Amadon. Thank you for joining me on this never-ending quest to figure out how to teach better. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Linda Angadi, Professor Emerita of Music Education from Kent State University. I first became acquainted with Dr. Angadi this summer when we were placed in the same discussion group for a book club that read How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. The book club was put on by the Office of Community Engagement and the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement here at the University of Mississippi. It was a wonderful experience and thought-provoking and, you know, I like to say the word cognitive shove. There was lots of cognitive shoves in reading this book. And then hearing Dr. Ngadi's perspective uh, as a teacher and a teacher educator, and I thought, you know what, I definitely want to talk about this book on the podcast. We had wonderful discussions during the uh, book club that took place over the entire summer, and I thought, hey, who better to have on the podcast and just to tap into her expertise and perspective. And so... Without further delay, I want to get you get us into this uh, get us into this episode because we we talked about a lot of good stuff. So, but before we jump into the conversation, just a quick disclaimer: in no way will we be able to communicate the whole value of the book. And even if we did, it would be from our perspective. In other words, if you like what you hear, go get the book for yourself. Seriously, go get the book for yourself. Uh, this book was actually sold out when I had to get it for the book club. We mentioned that in the episode, but um, it's available in paperback and uh, or not paperback hardcover uh, now. It Many bookstores, including your local bookstores like Square Books, uh, Square Books, which is where I got this one here in Oxford, Mississippi. Try to support those local booksellers if you can. So, without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Linda Angadi about the book "How to Be an Anti-Racist" by Ibram X. Kendi. Dr. Linda Angadi, thank you so much for uh, joining me on this episode of the Amazon Planet Podcast. Really appreciate your time, and uh, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Amadon. Uh, and we, I guess we could be a little bit more informal. We can go by, I'll, I can go by Joel. Is it okay if I call you Linda? Oh, uh, yes, please do. Yeah. Uh, but I also like to acknowledge like you've been, had a long career in teacher education and, but maybe you could give some of the listeners a little bit of background on uh, just who you are. Okay. I am a native of Jackson, Mississippi. Grew up and and uh, went to high school and attended Jackson State University. I left Jackson and went to graduate school at the University of Kansas. And after that, I had uh, a career in teacher education, teaching music education uh, at uh, the University of Wyoming, at the Conservatory of Music in Chicago, as well as adjunct positions at Loyola University and in Chicago. And then I got a tenure track position at um, Kent State University in Ohio, where I retired as emeritus professor after 28 years in 2018. And then you came down to Oxford. And then Somewhere I retired in, in Oxford. Yes, we decided to retire in Oxford. Uh, so I was in Ohio for a long time, 29 years, and we moved to Oxford in 2019. Nice. And we got introduced to each other through a, a book club, right, put on by here at the University of Mississippi, uh, a book club that was organized um, about the book How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, and that's going to be the subject of our conversation today. And I, I know we had a, a – man, it was – like for how long that book club went from, I can't even like. It was 18 weeks. It was 18 weeks. Yeah. 18 weeks. Yeah. Whole summer. 
yeah, whole summer and just, you know, I guess with a, a global pandemic, you can get some some good commitment from folks uh, throughout a summer to uh, uh, so to have some good conversations and just knowing uh, the the amount of investment that people had, the conversations we had, the consistency that we had throughout. And I thought, hey, this would be a good thing given your experience in, in teacher education and kind of the theme of this podcast would be a, a good thing for us to discuss and share. So thank you for uh, being willing to do this. I'm excited to do this. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So one thing I guess to to set up is, you know, it, we were kind of talking before we hit record here is, you know, kind of the, the theme of this podcast is maybe it's like pocket-sized professional development that people can kind of get an insight into a book. Uh, and maybe they, you know, especially if we're talking to teachers now who are dealing with online and you know, face-to-face classes and all sorts of different setups, quarantines and whatnot, and just trying to, you know, <laughs> survive a little bit. But maybe this could be a little bit of way to get some, you know, professional development. Think about these ideas about what it means to be anti-racist and to get a little bit of insight in this book. I guess the setup of this book is is pretty interesting. I don't know if you want to take a shot at it, and maybe I can add some things in about how uh, Kendi set up this book uh, on how to be an anti-racist. Okay. Well, what I liked about the setup is he begins each chapter with definitions of what he's talking about. And then he goes on to explore those definitions and uh, give really concrete examples using a lot of a lot of resources, a lot of research. I think the book is well-researched and uh, oh, the references yeah. are, are really good, yeah. So he does that really well. And um, what, what makes it, interesting reading for me too, is we learn about Kendi mm-hmm. because he talks about his, his growing up. He starts at the very beginning and talks about his educational experiences all the way from, from a third grade to uh, his graduate degree at Temple University. And what's cool, I mean, it's, it's not like, hey, here's, here's me, I've got it all figured out. And now you get to, because I have it all figured out, you can you know, read from these experiences. I mean, he shares some, you know, some pretty rough parts of his life, but that were illustrative of some of the things that he's talking about. It was, I mean, biographical, but yet, you know, using the, you know, like what you said, all the research that he had to really point out like, hey, here's some things in my own experience I could point to that's helped me like get to this place that I now find myself. Yeah, it's really tied together well. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, and, you know, say even some of the topics, I mean, if you go through the, um, all the different, you know, we talked about the definitions of terms that that he goes through and it's like power, biology, ethnicity, body, culture, behavior, color, white, black, class, space, gender, sexuality, failure, success, survival, and thinking about how do all of these sorts of things dealing with the, the, the topic of, of being anti-racist. And so just even to, to start there about labeling these definitions and, getting us to say, here's what we're talking about. And now let's use this research and even his own experiences to, to shed some light on it. It's just, it's a, it's, it, it's very readable too. It's like, it's, there's some pretty heady stuff, but it's like something that you can, mm-hmm. you can uh, approach. It's a great book. And for, and if it was <laughs> really uh, when we were setting up the book club or when the book club was uh, being offered. I mean, I just even trying to buy it. I usually like to get my books in paper and like, I like to handle them. 
Um, and also so I could disconnect from a device. It's always good too. But like, you couldn't get it. You couldn't get it. It was like sold out everywhere. I had to get it on Kindles just to get to get into the book club. So, but now I got it. I got it on paper. So, um, but should we dive into it? Should we start with uh, some of the categories here? Yes. yes. Awesome. So we start with our, our high fives or our high five learnings. Um, and actually, what, just because you've already touched on it, like my big, uh, one of my big learnings was this idea of definitions and just how, I mean, I remember I had a, an experience in a, um, a higher level math ed course. I think it was like honor or uh, abstract algebra or something. It was like, I look back at those notebooks, I don't understand a thing. But what would happen in that class is the instructor said, hey, if you know the definitions, you'll get at least a C in this class. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to memorize these definitions. And because I did that, I had that foundation with which to actually interact with this material that was really like this, you know, kind of goodwill hunting sort of like abstract math stuff that, but because I had these definitions, I was able to make sense of what I was seeing. And I think that's, you know, where, where Kendi is starting with this idea of like, let's lay out these definitions and so, and because he's, he does this quote and it's already on uh, page nine, he talks about the only way to undo racism is to constantly identify and describe it and then dismantle it. Well, you need the definitions to do that, right? And right. so, so thinking about like, he's giving us these definitions of not only, you know, uh, a lot of times a, a couple definition of, hey, here's racism, well, here's anti-racism and using those definitions to like play off of each other. I just, I really appreciated that. So like for every, every chapter, like you said, starts off with these definitions that gives us a place to start, right. In order to describe what we're seeing. So I, I know that you, you like the definitions too, but I just wanted to say like, that's, that's one of the things I really uh, liked. And I learned a lot from is those definitions. Me too, because even growing up as an African-American, some of the definitions I, I knew but I didn't know they were definitions. You know, I, I, I've experienced some things, but I didn't know how to define some of the things I've experienced. But uh, that's what he does. And he starts off with uh, defining racist and anti-racist. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says, he says, a racist is one who is supporting a racist policy through their actions or inaction or expressing a racist idea. An anti-racist is one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. So, so for, right off, we we learn it's not it's not enough to be um, uh, to say I'm not a racist. Right. But uh, the question is, are you an anti-racist? So he he really drives that point home because you don't you may not be a racist, but you may be you may not be an anti-racist either so the goal is for everybody to be an anti-racist that's the goal of the book to understand what an anti-racist is yeah and, and like that um that definition is basically saying like if i'm standing still if i'm not actively doing something well then you know it's kind of uh, i've heard the metaphor of like a conveyor belt right it's like you know, if you're just standing still, you're still going with the flow of whatever the conveyor belt is. The conveyor belt is, you know, the institution or society or whatever, like that there's and already policy. in policy. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And like, unless you're moving against it, like you, you're going with it. And I think that there's, uh, I've heard, ah, shoot, I think it was either Michael Apple or Bill Tate um, talking about uh, 
think it's Michael Apple talking about uh, math education and saying sometimes like with, you know, if you're, if you're just doing the same sort of practice, uh, you're perpetuating inequities that already exist, right? You're just putting people back into society that are already doing these things. So what are you doing against these sort of things? And so moving against that conveyor belt. So there's no, there's no neutral here. There's no neutral. No, no neutral. No yeah. neutral at all. Yes. And in chapter four, he talks about um, biological races. Mm. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Uh, he says, and I, I think that definition is worth repeating too, a biological racist is a person who expresses the idea that the races are meaningfully different in their biology and that these differences create a hierarchy of value. A biological anti-racist expresses the idea that the races are meaningfully the same in their biology are and there are no genetic racial differences. Yeah, that's that's pretty important. You know, we think about some of the, you know, the when you know, I guess we're we're both in education, right? So looking at yes. where people look at, you know, um, achievement gaps, right? And right right now we're talking about uh, achievement gaps, but then pointing to opportunity gaps and saying like achievement gaps, saying like there's differences here based off of this label that has no basis uh in biology and then thinking like well what's causing this and like looking at the student like there's something causing so no, no no we need to look at the opportunity gaps and saying no, no no what what opportunities are different like what is the system producing that is leading to these achievement gaps what what are what is what is happening here within the opportunities to learn that's leading here so like thinking like uh there's something that, what are we pointing to? Are we pointing to the student? Are we pointing to the system here? And I think, you know, sometimes we're, this definition really plays a part into that uh, of thinking like, okay, well, what are we really talking about here? Are you saying that there's this achievement gap, that there's going to be this specific difference based off of uh, this label? Or are we saying like, hey, you know what, there's something that's happening within the system, within the school, within the, uh, how things are being uh, laid out there. Uh, and those opportunities to learn that's causing these differences. And children are treated differently in schools because they look different than mm -hmm. other children. So, so that's what he's talking about too. I, I'm treated a certain way because of my looks. And, uh, and, but, but if we look at an anti-racist viewpoint, there are no genetic racial differences. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and teachers should see that. Uh, he, he likes to use the term racist abuse uh, instead of microaggression. And they, they, he talks about that in that chapter because he says racist, uh, racist abuse uh, describes the effect on people more, more uh, often than a microaggression does. Because as an adult, I can tell you that I have uh, experienced microaggressions, racist abuse, and it is harmful. It can be uh, harmful and, and uh, it can affect physical health over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, and he gave, he gave examples of, of uh, microaggressions, uh, a white woman who grabs her purse when a black man gets into the elevator, that's a microaggression. Right. And we heard recently in the news about Amy Cooper this white woman who called the police on black man who was bird watching in Central Park. Yeah. That's a microaggression. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So you can imagine if if I as an adult feel um, the anguish of microaggressions, what happens in, in teacher education? What happens with, with children in the classroom? And I can tell you, and I believe that African-American students experience microaggressions in public school classrooms every day, both from their peers and from their teachers all over this country. Yeah, I was just uh, calling up an example because um, it just came through my email, but it's a paper that I'd read before, but it's dealing with the classroom. It's a paper by uh, Ebony McGee and Danny Martin. Um, they talk about in the, the title of the paper is you would not believe what I have to go through to prove my intellectual value and thinking about some of the um, some of these experiences of these uh, students who are in STEM degrees like and uh, in the, from academically successful black mathematics and engineering students so they're going into like a math uh, like a high level math classroom like the one I was describing before and they would be asked like are you in the right classroom or things like that these like mm -hmm. you know these you know, microaggressions or these, these, you know, questionings of, of their uh, capabilities as a student. And so like, you know, they talk about some of the things that they would do, like if they have a class in a higher level math class, what they would do was buy the textbook and <laughs> buy the textbook, show up early, sit right front, middle and slam the textbook on their desk and be like, I'm here. This is my class. Like I'm, I, I'm mm -hmm. this is not a mistake. Like I'm here. And so like the fact that they would have to do that in order to show like, Hey, this is someplace I belong. Um, that's a, that's a, I'm going to, I'll put a link to that paper in the, um, in the show notes. Cause it's, it's pretty powerful when you hear this, some of these stories about things that have happened, like, you know, that's, that's, I'd never had that experience, you know? Well, yeah, I've had that experience, but imagine those people, at least the people you're talking about, they can do that. But, mm -hmm. but, Think about the children, the, the ninth grader, the sixth right. grader, the 12th grader. Uh, they, they, they don't have that wherewithal to, to be that able agency, to do that and yeah. say, I am here. Yeah, the agency. So, uh, I mean, even things like when the, when the teacher never calls on them when they raise their hand. And that was mm. one of Kennedy's experiences. Right. He saw that happen firsthand. I mean, when students are treated invisible to the teacher and... And even things, and I've seen this a lot, and you know, you, you've probably heard of this too, but when a teacher doesn't correct a student's name properly, mm. some of these these uh, African-American or African names may be different than, than uh, Mary, Johnny, and Sue. Yeah. And the teacher just doesn't even make an effort to, to pronounce the student's name correctly, even when they have been corrected. So that's a microaggression. And even scheduling tests on, on religious holidays or cultural holidays, uh, and tests or projects scheduled on those days, that's, that's even a microaggression. And I wonder if people, Joel, I wonder if people even realize what, what they're doing when they're doing these things. Some of these, these aggressions are, are deliberate, I'm sure, but sometimes I think people just don't know that they're doing these things that, and, and, and according to Kendi, they're being abusive and they're using microaggressions. And, and I guess, well, okay. So maybe here's the question that's being asked and like, let's throw it out here is like, well, how, you know, so maybe someone just heard that and they're like, well, how do I learn? How do I learn about that? And I guess too, that's not wanting to, to put that on to somebody to teach them. So like, you know, it is maybe about, 
reading, it's about reading these sort of books or reading the article that we mentioned or reading, uh, getting, becoming educated on what, what do these microaggressions look like? And I don't know, what, what would your response be to someone if they said, well, how do I learn? Just that, just what you're saying through research articles, through journal articles, uh, through talking with people. That's mm. one of the most important things. You know, I, I, I think people need to spend time talking with people and you don't have to be friends or have people over for coffee, but just attending workshops and uh, hearing what other people have to say, because we need to get out of our bubbles. Black people have been forced to get out of our bubbles, especially those of us who are in education. We've had to see a whole different side of humanity. We've had to spend time. And I said that to somebody once, you know, we were in doctor program at KU and I said, you know, I I know you all way better than you know me because I've had to, I've Mm. had to learn. (laughs) I've had to learn white people and white people haven't had to learn me. Mm. So I think reading the research, talking with people, spending time with people, uh, reading, uh, even today, today we can read in the newspaper what people are doing and see that it's wrong because there's so many examples in the news and in the media about little children selling lemonade or, mm-hmm. uh, or, or people being in the park. So those kinds of things. And when people really want to make a change yeah. and people really want to do things, they, they'll, they'll take note of those things and they can actually physically take note of those things and say, you know, I'm, I don't want to be this way. I'm, I'm going to, to hear, here's my list of microaggressions that I'm beginning and I'm going to read this book and do the, read this article and uh, listen to this podcast, listen to Amazon Planet and learn, <laughs> <laughs> and learn, <laughs> learn what, what not to do. Yeah. So it's incumbent upon in, individuals because you really can't teach that yeah so like another shameless plug like we talked with um Shamiko ellis a couple weeks ago about the book not light but fire how to lead meaningful race conversations in the classroom it was another book club that we had over the summer but that was another book that like offered actually some practical like advice for teachers on how to you know develop the develop the kind of relationships in the classroom so that you one you can learn more about each other but then two that that people feel comfortable having conversations uh, within the classroom that allow these sorts of relationships that can reveal like, oh, you know what? That probably doesn't make sense to, like you said, like uh, have this uh, assignment due on this day because that's a a cultural holiday. And I learned about that because I developed a relationship with you and I see what you're doing on the coming weekend or whatever. Like those sorts of things that we can do as as an education of ourselves, not only for who our students are, but then also just in general, what are other teachers doing um, in order to build some relationships? What's yes. another learning you had, Linda? Well, behavior. Mm. In chapter eight, Kendi defines a behavior of races as someone who makes individuals responsible for the perceived behavior of racial group and makes racial groups uh, for the behavior of individuals. Let me make sure I have that right. Um, yeah, it's a, a, that's a, right. I've got it out. Yeah. One okay, who is making it. individuals yeah. responsible for the perceived behavior of racial groups and making racial groups responsible for the behavior of individuals. Okay. And a behavioral anti-racist makes racial group behavior fictional and individual behavior real. Mm. 
So that's that's another one, and I can talk about it in terms of teacher education as well. I, I grew up in in a black community in Mississippi. Uh, I attended segregated schools. Uh, I'm dating myself, mm. but uh, I'm proud of that um, of my age. I graduated from a historically black college university, as I told you, Jackson State, mm-hmm. and I taught at four PWIs in in um, four states. So these combined experiences have taught me that there are no monolithic groups. Students are individuals. Their behaviors, whether good or bad, are shaped by their experiences inside and outside the classroom. And I've worked with a large population of students, black students, white students, brown students, uh, Native American students, just a large population. So, so Kendi says, uh, and I quote something from page 94, with racist teachers behaving kids, misbehaving kids of color do not receive inquiry and empathy and legitimacy. We receive orders and punishments and no excuses as if we are adults. Individual behaviors can shape the success of individuals, but policies determine the success of groups and it is racist power that creates the policies that cause racial inequities. Every time someone racializes behavior, describes something as black behavior, they're expressing a racist idea. And, and I think we see that in teacher education and in classrooms as well. We see students' behavior being grouped uh, uh, as, as, as though they are representing a group rather than representing themselves as individuals. Yeah, in this one, I, I mean, I'm really thankful for this definition. I mean, that the whole behavioral anti-racist is one who is making racial group behavior fictional and individual mm-hmm. behavior real. I mean, that's like what what you see, the behavior of an individual, I can attribute that to the end. I can't attribute that to a racial group. I mean, that the, the fictional part, I really appreciate because that just really helps you grab onto that um, yeah. definition. But you see that. I mean, you see that in, you know, in uh, you know, well, conversation you see that in the in the news, you see that elsewhere where you know, conversations with folks who are don't understand, um, don't understand how to approach behavior from that sort of perspective, and it's like, it's, this is a good definition to point to. It is, and just just approach students as students, just approach students as learners, not black learners or not white learners. I even heard a teacher say once and uh, about a white student who had cornrows. Oh, what's with the, and it was a very negative attitude, very tone of voice, very negative tone of voice. What's with the black hairstyle? And mm-hmm. she, she said to her, her friend, and I was in earshot standing right there. So, so teachers need to have more positive attitudes about, about uh, black and brown children's language, about their ability, what they can and cannot do, and about their behavior and their potential the same as they do with white students. And there are some studies that have talked about that too. Mm-hmm. Um, studies have, have also found that, that teachers have fewer, fewer favorable interactions with their black students than with white students. So here again, we have uh, teachers that um, sometimes don't look at children as children, but ascribe a whole set of behaviors to race Mm -hmm. 
I even like I like the term that you used before too. Is not just thinking of them as students, but think of them as learners. Because then, what does a what does a a student do? You could say a student could do a number of different things. What does a learner do? A learner learns. And so, thinking about how am I positioning this student in the best place to learn, and thinking about even their behaviors of like, well, how are they how are they in this classroom? How, what are the different ways that they can show their expertise, their understanding, their brilliance, even uh, yes. within the class? And so now we're 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 thinking of the individual and them demonstrating their competence and, and then highlighting those different ways that students can show their way of contributing to the classroom rather than thinking like there's only a singular way to behave or a singular way to show uh, brilliance, right? You know, and that, again, I'm coming from a math ed background where, you know, there's so many different ways now that you could express your, your understanding of something versus, you know, the limited ways that we're, available when or limited ways that were you know valued when I was a, a student in a math yeah. classroom. And that even applies to preferences and excuse me, preferences and likes. Uh what students like may be different uh not based on race, but just based on the individual. Mm-hmm. I, I remember doing a study uh once and finding out that black students didn't like spirituals, you know, and and uh spirituals born in the black community but they had their they had different opinions because they were different they were individuals mm-hmm. so I, th- I think if teachers could see students as individuals it would make a whole world of difference yeah absolutely so like that got me into another thing too so my one of my learnings that i wanted to highlight was uh page 24 kendy just does a great job of highlighting this these um, assimilationists and segregationists and talking about this, uh, the chapter is called dueling consciousness, but assimilationists as one who is expressing the racist idea that a racial group is culturally or behaviorally inferior and is supporting cultural behavioral enrichment programs to develop that racial group. Segregationists, one who is expressing the racist idea that a permanently inferior racial group can never be developed and is supporting policy that segregates away that racial group. And then, you know, then he, he, counters both of those with the anti-racist definition one who's expressing the idea that racial groups are equals and none needs developing a supporting policy that reduces racial inequity so i mean you know this is right in the wheelhouse of teacher education because i mean this was some of the operating principles of what schools did right they were assimilationists they're acting as assimilationists or they're acting as segregation um vehicles uh and so I mean, that, that's definitely a part of the, the history, definitely the history, maybe even the present of, of schools and yes. thinking about how are, we, how are we positioning them as institutions? What's, what's, what are they operating as? But I'd never thought, I mean, yes. the other thing, I never thought about those two words like that before. And again, he's laying it out very good and or very well with these definitions. Yes, he does. And uh, he also gives some of his own experiences growing up uh, as a as a student, uh, and uh, he talks about his parents uh, and their their um, beliefs as liberation theologists because they believed in li- in black liberation theology, and this was when when they went to Urbana. So he goes from education to church, and, mm-hmm. and, and then yeah, and then gives exper- gives examples of his experiences in. Queens and just it's it's what very well done and how he 
how he brings us together. And one of the one of the um, questions that you ask was about um, what uh, what may be a weakness in the book. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see I wanted to see more about assimilationist uh, when compared to segregationist and anti-racist. And I think he could do a whole book on anti-racism and assimilation. Yeah, we're kind of stepping on it, but yeah, that's what, you know, and and I was reflecting on that and I thought about, I thought about you saying that, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's my, you know, that's the, let's get critical. It's the critique part. Yeah. I could say that. Yeah. Yeah. I want more. (laughs) There's, I mean, more on this. Cause like, again, this is one of those, like, you know, I guess cognitive shove sort of moments where I'm like, you know, you've seen these two words, but haven't offered the the third, right? It was like, here's an option, here's an option, but like, are we presenting this anti-racist option, right? Versus, you know, a, we're got to go back and forth between these two options, but no, 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 there is a third option and he's laying it out, like here it is. Mm-hmm. And so to even, yeah, he could really dive deep into um this blow this chapter out a little bit but what else did you oh sorry go ahead okay i just wanted to say one one thing about that the final thing he says about uh about that in that chapter is to be anti-racist is to conquer the assimilationist consciousness and the segregationist consciousness so i'd like to see a whole treatise on that yeah that's on page 30 34, I think. Yes. Absolutely. What's another uh, learning you had, Linda? Well, one was looking at, which I never thought about this either, but I've certainly experienced it, but I so appreciate how he laid out conjoined twins of capitalism and racism in chapter 12. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so first question that comes to mind, how can America be so divided? Uh, Kendi says on page 156 that it's impossible to know racism without understanding its intersection with capitalism. Mm-hmm. And in the 21st century, persisting racial inequalities in poverty, unemployment, and wealth show the life work of the conjoined twins of racism and capitalism. That's on page 157. So when we look at uh, some of the facts he laid out and which he did a very good job uh, of uh, looking at the research and documenting what he said, the black poverty rate in 2017 nearly tripled the white poverty rate. The black unemployment rate was at least twice as high as the white unemployment rate for the Mm -hmm. last 50 years. The wage gap between blacks and whites is the largest in 40 years, and the median wealth of white families is about 10 times that of black families. All of the, all of those policies, all of that affects teacher education. And I think these disparities are baked into policy decisions that have an adverse effect on education from the way we train teachers to where we place them for student teaching, where they get their jobs, uh, how they teach, and and ultimately how children learn. So these policies have got to change. Unless, uh, I just feel, Joel, we have got to, and maybe it's it's teacher education working in conjunction with whomever else, but these disparities have got to get better because until we see 
until we see some changes in housing policies, tax policies, education policies, policing even, mm -hmm. and uh, unabated mass incarceration and more, we, we are not going to, to see the changes that we need to see uh, in education. And, and we have to even the playing fields for African-American, Latinx children and their families. Uh, and, you know, the way I see to do that to start doing that is is with the vote. So we don't have to go into politics. You probably don't want me to go into politics <laughs> on this podcast either. But but those disparities, those policies affect teacher education, I think, in all those ways. Well, yeah, I mean, like, there's so much in the, uh, I mean, what, what are you saying? We're talking so much about policy, like, that there you can't not talk about the vote right you have to you have to like activate some sort of uh lever with policy and so thinking about how are you doing that are you are you getting out there and we it's not too late to to think about how are you what's your plan for voting and um those out there that have i think unfortunately the registration date in mississippi has passed but if you have not done that uh or if you have done that, like thinking about what is your plan for voting and how are you looking at what are the policies that you're, who you're voting for, who do those people support, not only at the national level, but at the local level as well. Yes. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, so, and that, I guess, um, you know, you talked about this, uh, the, the co-joined twins of capitalism and racism. And that just got me thinking of uh, what was highlighted in, the gender chapter in page 188, just the idea of inter, intersectionality. And he does a good job again, of defining that within the chapter and going a little bit back into where intersectionality came, you know, came to be defined by, looks like uh, Dr. Williams Crenshaw. Um, but we talks about this race, gender, and like looking at that, that intersectionality of race and gender and how that could come to be and thinking about, you know, feminism and racism and, and that sort of, that sort of, I don't know if it was eye-opening, but again, <laughs> this is, seems to be a theme. The way he lays it out is able to be like, oh, okay, that's, I, I can see what intersectionality means that it's like, and for me as a math person and thinking like a, a one variable equation is easy to solve. As soon as you add two variables, three, you start adding some more variables in it like the complexity of it gets more and more that you have to consider as you're trying to come up with a solution to that equation. Well, same thing mm -hmm. here. When we start thinking about the intersectionality of some of these, uh, some of these ways of considering people, it's like, whoa, this, this gets more and more complicated. And, but still something that we have to keep in mind in dealing as a teacher in classrooms in different ways. Like, how am I, how am I thinking about my teaching, am I thinking about it in just, you know, one-dimensional ways or am I thinking about it in these multi-dimensional ways? Right, because uh, when, you, when you look at race and gender, uh, it is, it is um, very complicated. And we've experienced it in classrooms and girls, girls are treated different than boys in the classroom and in many classrooms across the country. And and black girls are treated differently. As a matter of fact, Kendi, in one of his stories, talked about the 
makeup of his classroom, the, the demographic mm -hmm. makeup of his classroom. And the, the little girl who was ignored when she raised her hand was a shy little girl who never raised her hand. And he sat on the back so, so he could see, get a view of the whole classroom. Uh -huh. The teacher was white. The little girl who raised her hand was was black and the teacher overlooked her. The one time she raised her hand, the teacher overlooked her and looked at her and then called on a little white girl. So mm -hmm. those are the kinds of things that we we need to uh, train our teachers to to see and to know. And, and hopefully, I just pray that they're not doing these kinds of things deliberately. But in many cases, we know there are because truth be told, there are racist teachers. Mm -hmm. teachers who are racist yeah and then and, and what's i guess what's important there too is like what do you do when you're confronted by you know the the data or the realization or whatever it is that's saying like hey there's there's some some gaps in the way or the opportunity gaps in how you are positioning your classroom not saying that anyone is perfect but thinking about how do you then respond to that realization? How do you respond is like, well, that's, and, and I think that's where this like, you know, like Kendi talks about this peelable sticker of whether, you know, being racist or anti-racist, Amy even talks about it in his own experience, like in some actions he was acting racist, some actions he's acting anti-racist and it's a constant like action moving forward. So like thinking about what's the next action given given what you know and what you understand, how do you keep going forward? We even talked about with microaggressions, if not, it, when you, you become aware, like this is my, okay, so how do you act going forward? Um, I think that's, that's something that we need to be, if we're confronted by something, how do we respond? How do we keep going forward um, as teachers? Yeah, I think that's important to know what you point out, and Kendi does point out that we could be anti-racist and uh, racist at the same time, depending on situations and, and where we are. And uh, even says that uh, black people can also be racist. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was a revelation to me. But when the way he explained it, I understood what he said. So, so we're anti-racist and racist sometimes at the same time in the same day of the week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if we keep growing, we got to keep growing. Yes. That's our next question is like, now you know uh what what do you do uh going forward having read this book and so i know you're coming from a different perspective like uh coming down here in your your retirement years and but still thinking about like how would you have approached uh your teacher education classroom or even uh yeah your teacher education classroom or what recommendations would you have for me going forward and thinking about what would you do differently uh in the training of teachers Okay, that's that's a big that's a big one, and I might I'll try not to be all over the map here <laughs> with <okay>. this, <laughs> but um, I, I I have to just say this because it's it, it's been on my mind and and uh, yeah. it's, it came up it came up recently. Uh, first of all, anti-racist pedagogy does not look like patriotic education. Let's just get that out in the open. Mm. Uh, this current president accused schools of teaching students, and I quote, hateful lies about this country. And he said he would take steps to restore a patriotic education. A after I saw that comment and read it and looked a little at a little bit of his um, speech at the National Archives when he talked about that, I ran across 
Kendi, because I was reading some more of Kendi. Mm-hmm. And Kendi says, and I quote, what Trump calls patriotic education is racist education. And then, then I heard uh, a group of, uh, with a group of friends my age, and they're progressive, but daughters of the Confederacy, they agree even that patriotic education is throwback to when, when all of us were in elementary and junior high school. You know, we, we weren't taught anything. We weren't taught the correct history. We weren't uh, of this country. So broadly speaking, uh, uh, anti-racist pedagogy first teaches the truth about the history of this country and truth and facts in all disciplines, including mathematics and science and, and even in music. So we have to we have to make certain that we're that we're balancing what students are learning, and then uh, uh, in anti-racist pedagogy, and I think teachers who are teachers of teachers need to to um, show respect for differences, and then mm-hmm. affirm affirm those differences uh, among students, and and they can help. Um, uh, African-American Latinx students uh, develop a strong, positive racial and cultural identity. And, and then treat people as individuals because there's no such thing as black behavior, let alone irresponsible black behavior. And I, I don't know if teachers are guilty of this, but, uh, you know, today, but I know in, in, in recent years, teachers have been guilty of, of having the attitude that, that some of their students are superior to others. And uh, that, that's not, that's, I mean, as individuals, of course, students are better musicians because they practice more or better at math than other students because they have the skill set. But, but I mean, just seeing people as superior intellectually over others is something that that um, Kendi talks about in biology, biological racism, and we have got to stop that. And and uh, I'll i pause here for a minute after I say this: uh, uh, anti-racist pedagogy is not colorblind, because if people don't see students of color, how can they identify racial inequity? Or how can they challenge racial policies that affect students of color? I cringe every time I hear a teacher say, well, I'm colorblind. <laughs> Do they even know what they're saying? So I'll, I'll pause there and then I can add more things. But I think that's what, that's, uh, does that answer your question? Yeah. I mean, I mean then what we'll, we could do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Thinking about even that last point with about you know hearing the the colorblind stands, I mean, that was something that you know I would hear a lot, and it's like you, you think like that was like someone, or even let's just point it at myself that maybe that was something from my perspective where I grew up in a very uh, homogenous community, you know, small rural community up in northern Wisconsin, and you know to to be colorblind, hey, I'm going to treat everyone the same. It sounds good initially but then you think like well no that's not that's <laughs> you're ignoring the part of someone's identity and a part of what makes them who they are and part of like learning more about them and, and you're like shutting you're basically shutting the door to that and so having instilling a curiosity uh, about students and even using some of the things I, I think even from like Matthew Kay's book that I mentioned earlier just about 
opening up spaces to learn more about folks, how they, a um, little bit different life experiences, a little bit different uh, experience about how they demonstrate their their learning and, and just like all these different things that you can learn from a sense of curiosity uh, about not only not only about our students, but just about people and like how then you can use that within the classroom to be a better teacher. And I think, you know, whenever we sh shut that down through like that stance of being colorblind, we're like we're in dangerous territory there. So no, I, I think that's, I mean, what you're presenting is definitely some ideas that we need to consider and, and what actions go along with them going forward. Yes, thank you. I, I'm glad that you agree. Well, and there's something actually there's, uh, I did a I did another podcast called the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. And we talked with uh, uh, two researchers that put out this classroom observation tool called Equip. And it's basically looking at participation. And it's a, something that as a teacher could do for their own teaching, they could analyze their own teaching or something like a supervisor, a teacher supervisor could use. But it basically just looks at how do you, you know, how do students uh, self-identify, putting that within a classroom observation tool, and then looking to see if you identify patterns in participation. So it's a very simple tool, but it's looking at, you know, are there things within your own practice that you're missing? Like you're not noticing like, oh, yeah, I'm calling on certain people more, or I'm maybe calling on certain, uh, I might be calling on my class, like represent representationally equivalently, or whatever, that's a bad way to phrase it. But basically, I'm, I'm calling on people the same. But for some folks, I'm asking yes or no questions. And some folks, I'm asking how or why questions. So like, mm -hmm. getting, digging in deeper. And so it's just a way, it's a tool, it's called equip, and I'll put a link to it in the class notes. But it's a tool where you could, you could look at those things and see it, are there patterns that I'm, uh, that I don't necessarily notice that within my own teaching, or maybe I think, you know what, maybe, maybe I am doing that, I want to get some data to see how what kind of opportunity gaps maybe exist in my own teaching. And so giving yourself some quantitative data to back up like hey am i am i providing a good space in order to for uh students to demonstrate their understanding and thinking about what are the what are the different ways that i might be showing some bias within my teaching so equip is something that um or something like that where you're looking at you're interrogating your own practice because as kenny said in the beginning right away is the only way to undo racism is to consistently identify and describe it. So, you know, to be vigilant and to look out for it and like, how, how do I provide, um, how could I provide tools for my future teachers to say, hey, here's a way that you can look at your practice. So that's something I want to incorporate going forward is giving them ways to look at their own practice and say, like, how, how am I presenting an equitable split space for people to learn? Or am I providing enough opportunities for people to demonstrate their understanding? about content, just at least taking steps forward that way in, in looking at practice. And what you're talking about, I think is self-knowledge, uh, whether or not they have the knowledge, skills, and even the attitudes to create a democratic classroom and to implement cultural, culturally responsive and inclusive uh, curriculum and practices. And that comes with examining oneself and, mm -hmm. and seeing what it is that you're doing, why are you doing and taking stock. And I used to tell my students all the time uh, in my methods class, uh, every time they teach, reflect on 
what they taught and how they how they did. But this this was when they were out practice teaching, when they were student teaching, because we had students to go out and observe and and teach before their student teaching experience. So every time, just reflect on what you did and and how you're doing it, and that helps students to become aware of, of what they're doing when they reflect. Just not just go on to the next thing. So they have to just take time to do that. I think uh, in-service teachers have to do that too. Reflect on what they're doing uh, after they've done it or what they what they have done. Yeah, and I think then using some of these, you know, definitions or whatnot, or yeah, the definitions of being anti-racist, the various ones throughout this book is a way I think of like flipping on sensors where you're, you're flipping on sensors to like, oh, this is something else I can notice. This is something else I can notice. Because if you, without those sensors flipped on you, you might your your idea about what a um good classroom practice looks like might be very narrow and versus flipping these things on and all of a sudden i'm noticing other things or or even to figure out like what's what are microaggressions or what are um what are these uh different ways of seeing racism exist within this space like i've got more ways to more ways to notice those things that means there's my my reflections on my practice can be richer and can help me move forward better if I know if I have these other ways of noticing things that are happening within my practice. And and I want to say one more thing about that. Uh, teachers need to understand how their own culturally based perspective influence their perceptions and their expectations and how they were raised and if that fits the what they're what they're trying to do as teachers. I, I've met, uh, and I won't call names, but I've met a couple of people since I've been in this area since retirement who are not training to be teachers, but they are certainly sharp. And they're, they're white girls who were raised one way and they, since being here at Ole Miss, they see uh, how the, the perspectives they learned and and the the way they were um, taught to perceive things are just not in line with what they see now. Mm-hmm. And they they see a a bigger and um, brighter future for themselves because they are not locked into those narrow things they learned um, growing up in their family. And, and that doesn't mean they don't love their families, but they've learned, they have a different perspective. Yeah. And that's called growth, I think. Yeah, and Kendi does a good job of kind of laying out his own, like your your story, you learn from your story too, to interrogate your where you came from, what your beliefs are or were, and how you can continue to grow. And like, those are, those are those markers. I mean, I, I think, you know, I had a narrative about my own background of like pulling myself up by my bootstraps, but then, you know, acknowledging, you know, there's, there's some privilege there, there's a significant amount of privilege there and like recognize, okay, well, where did that come in and how do I, what do I do with that going forward? Right. And so like, again, sensors flipped on and, and meaning a, maybe a different way of, of going about my practice moving forward. So. Yes. All right, Linda, the challenge is to sum up this, <laughs> this book in uh, seven words. That's uh, that's that is a that's a big one given uh, all the stuff that's in this book. But I think you did a good job. You want to share yours? Yes, and uh, 
Easy, easy peasy for me because it comes from my upbringing. Treat others like they are your family. Love it. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And I, I had, um, I, I, I was playing around with it. I was like, be anti-racist. There is no neutral. But then I was like, wait, wait, wait. I got to go back to my definitions. Act anti-racist. There is no neutral. So it's that whole idea about that acting. Like it's, it's about continuous moving forward. As soon as you have one action, you got to continue with the next one to keep, keep that label up. So, all right. So, and given you have a tremendous amount of experience as an educator, I'm just curious, like what, uh, what insight do you have on teaching? Like what are some of the good stuff that you did with teaching? What, what are some advice that you'd have going forward for uh, any teachers that might be listening to this podcast? Wow. I, you know, okay. Let me just, just start that with a James Baldwin quote, just in case I don't get to say it. Uh, Not, he quotes, I quote James Baldwin, not everything that is space can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is spaced. Mm. So I think teachers need to take off rose-colored glasses, look as clearly as they can into teacher education, what it is they want to do, the kind of teacher they want to be, the kind of person they want to be, and then double down on that. Mm. Uh, Double down on that with with everything they read and hear and see. And it's it's like I used to tell my doctoral students, you, you have to funnel in. You can't, you know, as you go through the program, you can't be all over the place at one point. You have to, your research and the articles you read, everything has to start funneling Mm -hmm. in, you know, and that's how you become the expert or supposedly the expert at something. So I think teachers need to, especially pre-service teachers, need to read as much as they can and look at research because we don't have our teachers look at research too much in undergraduate classes. Mm -hmm. So look at research in their field and, and look at research related to, to anti-racism and then just double down on all of that. Um, and I, I say that because I've gotten some notice, notes um, lately, two emails recently uh, that uh, from undergraduates that I haven't seen in years who've said, thank you for this. And they, their perspectives have changed and they have, share it with me how their perspectives have changed based on on uh, experiences they had in my classes so so that's one thing one thing I think um, teachers need to do and I would suggest teachers do just look inside and look outside of themselves mm. and and make the changes that are are necessary and and don't be afraid uh, uh, because the kind of teacher that they want to be is is up to them. So don't be afraid to make changes that are, are necessary. That's what these two girls did. They came from their hometowns and they came to college and they they saw the need to make changes and to broaden themselves and they, they're doing that even in the way they talk and think. So teachers just, uh, pre-service teachers cannot be afraid to, to change what needs to be changed. And uh, certainly, certainly, um, Somewhere they will learn um, that they have support in what they're doing. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, I, I'm a big uh, proponent of having like a pocket-sized philosophy statement to use that to like 
reinforce like what you're doing in the classroom and to figure out like how am I want to, you know, I like the, the word funnel. I like the word you said funnel. I use that with my doctoral students too, the idea of a funnel, but like having that set of pocket-sized philosophies, like, Hey, here's what matters to me. But then that also could mean that I get exposed to ideas and things like maybe it is anti-racist pedagogy that has been put in front of you and be like, I need to figure out how to incorporate this in and what does this mean to my practice? And like having that question of like, well, what does anti-racist pedagogy look like? How, what does that look like in my teaching, in my context with the the classrooms that I've been put in and or whatever, or even, you know, I, I like to think too, anti-racist pedagogy or, or just teaching from this perspective is extends beyond the classroom, right? It extends to how am I as a parent, how in any situation where I'm in a teaching role or trying to influence somebody with their relationship with some content is there's all sorts of ways I could be thinking about that and how am I leveraging the, those ideas that presented by Kendi within um, within any of those roles. So there's there's some there's some work to do, but I, I mean as yes. long as we're continuing to take steps forward, like that's all you can ask for. That's all we can ask for. And even baby steps forward better than not moving forward at all. That's right. That's right. So, well, Lynn, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your expertise and uh, the, the thoughtfulness of which you, uh, you know, approach this book and, and the way that we had this conversation. This was good stuff. There's lots of, and like we always say uh, at the beginning of these podcasts is like, there's no way we're going to cover this book, but I think we did a pretty good job, but I mean, I would highly encourage everyone to go pick up a copy for themselves. Anything else that you wanted to add before we? Uh... Just stay safe, everybody. There you go. Well, thank yeah. you so much. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. That's it. Uh, lots of stuff there. Um, man, we could have gone for another uh, another whole episode if we wanted to. We had lots to discuss uh, in this book. And so, again, can't stress it enough. Please go get the book if you can. Uh, there's uh, links to purchase it in the show notes, which you can find at amazonplanet.com forward slash episode 35. You can also, again, support those local bookstores. Um, but wherever you get it, it's a good read. And just lots of definitions, lots of ways that we can think about what it means to be anti-racist, what it means to, to uh, root uh, racism out by learning to uh, identify it, describe it, and dismantle it. And so uh, thankful for uh, this, this book, thankful for the, con for the conversation with Dr. Ngadi, and just uh, thankful for all you out there who are listening. And if you're looking for ways to support the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. Subscribe to the Amazon Planet Download, which will contain teaching resources and updates from Amazon Planet. Follow at Amazon Planet on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or you can like the Amazon Planet Facebook page. Check out the Amazon Planet store or the Amazon Planet bookshop. We've got... Uh, I think right now there's a couple orders going out for uh, hoodies and shirts. So if you want to jump on that, by the time this uh, episode lands, you should be able to do that. If not, you can start a new one uh, and they'll, uh, they'll put another order in. But also the Amazon Planet Bookshop, any purchases you make there of something like uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, if you purchase that book through those links and the show notes, uh, the part of that purchase will go back to support the podcast. And links to both those places, both the store and the bookshop, can be found in the footer at amadonplanet.com. They can also be found in uh, in the show notes at amadonplanet.com forward slash episode 35. 
Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Amazon Planet Podcast. Thank you, Doctor, to Dr. Linda Angadi for her expertise and sharing her perspectives. We're just thankful for that. Thankful to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. And finally, thank you to all of you out there who are seeking to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you have been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace. Peace.